Open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 13, and it was an unplanned pause from our study in Corinthians. We will rejoin 1 Corinthians 15 next Sunday and continue to work our way through the topic of the resurrection. But... um, My mind was grinding and running, (laughs) so it began to um, percolate, if you will, an an idea for a message, and uh, it's really not as much of a New Year's message as it is, I think, a message on a day like New Year's where we think about newness, we think about perhaps change, we do think about resolutions, and Some people have dismissed resolutions because they've never been able to fulfill them, so they just think it's a waste of time. But I think it's good to have resolutions. I think it's good to challenge ourselves. I think it's good to have a goal in mind as we begin a new year. And I remember the old adage, and I don't know who has been credited with this saying, but you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. And I think there's some truth in that. And I think if we don't begin a new year with some spiritual goals in mind, we're likely to not set them. And so I think it's good to be challenged in this respect on a new year, although this really isn't a resolution-type message per se. So here's what I was thinking about the other day. And I was thinking about this uh, through a, a mixture of experiences and purposes. But here's what I was thinking about. Time is a constant, right? Time never changes. There are always going to be 60 seconds in a minute. There's always going to be 24 hours in a day. There are always going to be 365 and a quarter days in a year. Remember, there's a leap year every four years. Time is a constant. Ten years in a decade, a hundred years in a century, and on and on you can go. But our perception of time is usually affected by the circumstances that we are going through or the stage of life that we are currently in. For example, time will go by very, very slowly for someone who is grieving the unexpected loss of a loved one. Time will go very, very slowly for someone who is unemployed and they're waiting for a job. Time will go very slowly for someone who is recovering from a major surgery. You've been through those kinds of experiences and you know how slowly it feels time is moving, yet time is constant and never changes. Differing stages of lives, of our lives also will bring about this feeling like time is just moving so slowly, becoming a teenager, waiting for the teen year to come, waiting for the day when you can get a driver's license, waiting for the day when you graduate from high school, or you graduate from college, or you finally get married, or you have some kids, or you get out of the house and be on your own, relaxing in the days of retirement. All these stages of life that we go through will impact our perception of the constant that is time. Each of these periods can feel like they are decades, even though they may only be a couple of years. And when we finally do get to the stage of our life where we're able to retire, we look back and say, my, oh my, where has the time gone? It's gone by so quickly. Isn't that right? So our stage of life, the experiences that we go through in life, are going to affect our perspective of the constant of time, even though time never really changes. So I wanted to start the new year and 
kind of take advantage of this constant of time. And because most people are thinking about a new year and they are thinking about newness and options and choices, etc., I felt like this passage speaks to this for us today. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And here's what the Word of God says to us through the Apostle Paul. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now this is a fairly simple passage to outline. It's just a a handful of verses. These four verses are going to speak to us today in two major points. The first one is this. It is the command. The command is found right out of the gate. Verse 11, the very first part of that, Paul says, do this. Now, he has just come out of teaching the congregation about love and about loving one another. And I'm always a little reticent to jump into the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book that we haven't gone through. But this is a section that virtually every commentary treats separately from what was before it and what was coming after it. So I don't think it's out of bounds to do this, although I don't prefer to do this. Paul begins by saying, do this. It's a very simple attention-getting phrase. Do this. It alerts us that something important is about to come and it's going to set the tone for what is going to come in these next couple of verses. So Paul says, do this, and as a bit of a summary of what is going to come, wake up because time is short. Now, I know that naturally, the older we get, the more we recognize and realize that time is very short. But again, depending upon the stage of life we're in, we can kind of believe that life is just going to go on and on and on. But you get into your 60s and you go, wait a minute. You get in your 70s, you go, wow, what happened? And if you make it to 80s, you're going, man, it's gone. It's almost over. Isn't that right? Wake up because time is short. Verse 11 and 12, the first part of that 12a. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe the night is almost gone and the day is near. Now it's interesting what Paul uses to communicate the reality that believers need to wake up because the time is short. The command is to awaken from sleep. Do this. Wake up from your slumber. Of course, Paul is not talking about a literal sleep. He's talking about a spiritual sleep. I would describe a spiritual sleep as an indifference, a laissez-faire attitude, an unwillingness to address the issues at hand in our own spiritual lives. Thinking about the comparison to physical sleep, when we are physically asleep, we are inactive, we are unaware of what is taking place around us, we're dreaming dreams and we're basically unconcerned about what is taking place around us because we're not aware of it. In a similar way, our being asleep spiritually leads us to being indifferent towards what is taking place in our own lives, in our church, in our culture, in our community. We just sit back and we go along for the ride, 
And there's a sudden awakeness to the ride that we're on, and we go, what happened? What have I been doing? This is what Paul is trying to do for us intentionally, is wake up because the time is short. Have you ever been awoken from a physical sleep in a very startling way? wasn't long ago I was in my house. I was out. I was dead to the world. And we have these hardwired smoke alarms in our house. And for some reason, these hardwired smoke alarms started going off. And the shrill was unbelievable. I've never heard them go off before. And I jumped up. And I was in a daze. And I said, who's there? What's going on? What's going on? Who is in there? I was just totally out of it. And that is the idea here for us spiritually is that we're unaware, we're indifferent towards, we're just kind of nonchalantly going along for the ride and we're going to come to our point, we're going to come to a point in our life where we're going to look back and we're going to say, what happened? How did I get here? Something needs to change. So Paul is making this startling sound at the very beginning of this by saying, do this, and he begins to tell the Romans and us what they and we are to do and why. Wake up because the time is short. Now what's interesting here is that the word time that Paul uses here is not chronos time, talking about the hours in the day or the years in our lives. He's talking about kairos time, and that reflects an era or an epoch of time. So Paul uses two phrases to communicate this sense of urgency to the Romans and to us and to the need for us to wake up. First one is this, salvation is nearer. Now he isn't talking about about the salvation of an individual or a group of people who are considering giving their lives to Christ. He's talking about the completion of our salvation, the consummation of our salvation that is to be realized in the future, our glorification when the end of all time comes. Now, that is much closer than you and I would begin to believe, and virtually every generation that has lived since the days of Paul and the apostles believe that they're living in the last days, that in their lifetime, the Lord is going to return and pull the plug and everything's going to come to an end. This is the kind of era that Paul has in mind here. The era is... Salvation is nearer, meaning the consummation, completion of our salvation when the end comes and we are ushered into glory for all eternity. Now, we don't know and we cannot know the time that Jesus is going to come. We can't know the year, we can't know the month, we can't know the hour. But we do know that it is at least 2,000 years sooner than it was in the time that Paul wrote these letters. We're 2,000 years closer to the Lord's return than when Paul wrote these letters to the church in Rome. I remember many years ago seeing a commercial for a very popular soap opera, and it would go like this. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. And you might say, wow, that was one of my favorites. I I don't really know. I never watched it. But I remember that slogan, and that's the reality. We don't know how much sand remains in the Lord's hourglass of human history as we experience it in the constant that is in time. But we know that we are nearer to the coming of our Lord than any other generation in history. And we cannot know how many generations are going to follow us. Many of us will believe it's going to come in our own lifetime, don't we? 
Every day we live, we come one day closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the final events in God's redemptive plan. And I believe that most of us would say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, come. I'm ready. I, I just so blessed talking to Carol. And we talk about a variety of things. And she just says over and over and over, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready for Him to come. I'm ready. She's anxious, she's waiting. What's taking so long? She has an understanding, I believe, that time is short. Not because of her age, but because of the era that we live in. So salvation is nearer. The second thing that Paul says to us here that communicates the urgency is night is almost gone, day is near. Now we need to understand some of the symbolic meanings behind the word choices that Paul uses here. So what this means is that man's time of spiritual unbelief, of rebellion and sin is about to end and God's time of judgment and glory and righteousness is about to begin. The darkness that overshadows this world in this constant of time, in this era, is coming to an end and day is going to dawn. And that day is the new era that is going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom that we are going to be blessed and privileged to live in. But this world that we live in, in this era, is a world that is dominated by the power and the presence of sin. It doesn't really take any effort to recognize that if we just go through a cursory reading of most online media outlets, or we watch the news, or we talk to people in our community. The world as a whole is not becoming more godly and peaceful, but it's becoming more ungodly and more violent. It's amazing to me how creative man is getting and doing evil to other man. I, I, I mean... How do you come up with this stuff? The world is getting darker and darker and darker. Every day the news of man's inhumanity to man becomes more dreadful and his rejection of God becomes more blasphemous and more arrogant and more obvious. And so from the human perspective, it sometimes seems that the night of man's depravity is endless and that Satan's dominion over man is becoming stronger But that's not the truth. There is a time, there is an era when this is going to end and a new era or a new day is going to begin. And this is this is what Paul is talking about. Night is coming to an end and the dawn is just around the corner. The nighttime of world history will soon give way to the daylight of Christ's glorious kingdom. We would read this in Revelation 11.15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. We would read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-8. through 8. Now as to the times and the epochs or eras, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness... 
that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul's using the same terminology to explain to the Romans what he's explained here to the church at Thessalonica about darkness and sin and daylight and the new era of God's kingdom being established in this world. We are to wake up because the era that we are in is short. That era is the dominion of sin, the darkness that has enveloped our world, this world that you and I are called to be light in. So number two in our outline, in addition to what we see in the command, is the challenge. Here's the challenge in this waking up that Paul is going to establish for us. Second part of verse 12, Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the challenge is very simply this. We must choose between sin and righteousness. We must always choose between sin and righteousness. And make no mistake about it, there is always a choice to be made. Here the choice is laying is between laying aside sin, that's the first part of the choice, and putting on righteousness. The other choice that we are going to make. Again, there is a contrast here of the darkness and the light. The picture image is one of clothing, one we choose to take off, and the other that we choose to put on. So, to lay aside means to forsake or to renounce. It indicates repentance or turning away from the things that are related to darkness. So darkness is a general term for sin, and we are to lay aside those deeds that are consistent with darkness or sin. The contrast of that is that we are to put on, it is to intentionally choose to clothe oneself with something other than the deeds of darkness. So think about it like this. When your day begins, you choose what physical garments you are going to wear. You lay aside your sleeping clothes and you put on the clothes that you are choosing to wear for the remainder of the day. Now, not everybody follows that. Some people do go out in the clothes they sleep in. They wear pajama pants and slippers and all kinds of unpresentable outfits out there. That's the exception to the rule. But usually when we get up and we start our day, we take off our sleeping clothes and we choose to put on another set of clothing that is fitting for the activities that are ahead of us. Would you ever consider going to your place of employment in your sleep clothes? You would never ever do that. You wouldn't think about coming to church in your sleep clothes, would you? He would never ever do that. And that's kind of the picture image that we're getting here is that we're choosing to take something off because it's consistent with the deeds of darkness or sin and we're choosing to put something on because it's consistent with the new day. It's consistent with who God is and here he specifically says we are to put on the armor of light. So this is a reference to the armor of God which protects us from the evil that is in the world. But that armor also reflects the righteousness of God which is indicated by the usage of the term light. Light always reflects the goodness 
and the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God. Evil is sin and dark. God is light and glorious. God is so bright that you can't even look upon Him because you just can't, you can't experience it. You can't even endure it. It's like staring into the sun. You can't really do that because of the damage it'll, it'll create to your eyes. In a similar way, the righteousness and the holiness of God is so bright that we can't look upon it, yet we're instructed to put on the armor of light. When we do that, we put on the armor of God and we put on His holiness and His purity that has been given to us through our faith in Christ as God exchanged our sin for Christ's righteousness and our sinfulness with His holiness. We are to choose to put that on when we begin our day. There's always a choice and the choice is either going to be sin or holiness. Now, let me ask you this question. If you start your day and metaphorically you don't choose to change out of your sleeping clothes, what will you enter your day clothed with? Your flesh, your sin, yourself. And this is what we'll see explained to us here through the contrast in the examples that Paul is using here. Verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Those activities are consistent with the darkness. So we are to behave properly, we are to clothe ourselves, and we are to live as we are in the day. Now there's a lot of examples that you give, that you could give. There's a lot of bad things that happen at night, right? People think the darkness shrouds their activity. And while that might be true to some extent, it doesn't really fully shroud their activity. So we are to behave as if we are in the light of day. And that day is consistent with the holiness and the purity of God given to us through faith in Christ. So behaving properly is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? You don't really need a lot of explanation or Breaking down of what that means, behaving properly, speaks for itself. But it is to live in a way that pleases God. It is to live honestly before God and before men to live an outward life that is consistent with our inner nature in Christ. Now we know that in our heads, don't we? How difficult is it to live that out to the fullness of the holiness and the purity that is ours through Christ. Easy to say, very, very difficult to do. And so, in this example, I believe there is this contrast of self-rule that is being identified here. Paul gives three pairs of closely closely associated examples that contrast between sin and righteousness, night and day, each of which involve our own self-will. So carousing and drunkenness, this would be this wild partying that leads to all kinds of sinful behavior. And the terminology that is used here in the Greek is related back to celebratory activities would take place after a military victory, after some kind of conquer, some kind of accomplishment, something that would take place, and there would be a big celebration, and the celebration would be accompanied by wild drinking, and wild drinking would lead into other kinds of activity that 
isn't really very good, not consistent with daytime activity. So carousing and drunkenness is the first example that Paul gives. And he gives a second example of here of sexual promiscuity and sensuality. And they're pretty similar. There's some differences in the nuances. One of them involves the physical act of. The other one is the lustful desires of. And usually when you have an action for something, it's because you've desired it first. And that's the idea here is that we lust for what we, we lust after those things and we pursue them and they go hand in hand. Jealousy and strife also very closely associated, while not on par with the first two pairs of examples, but they are no less sinful and no less displeasing to God than the others. They are perhaps more tolerable and more acceptable, but they are still traits that should be laid aside. Now the first thing I want to mention here is this. We should not give ourselves a pass on this teaching because we don't get drunk and go carousing or we don't give in to sexual promiscuity or sensuality. We might struggle with jealousy and strife a little bit, but maybe not the first two pairs. So Paul's point isn't to identify particular things to put off, but he's citing examples of what are a part of the deeds of darkness. So if we understand deeds of darkness to communicate sin... We're being called to put off sin in general and not just the examples of sin that Paul is using here. One should never dismiss the passage if we don't believe ourselves to be guilty of the specifics that are being mentioned here. I would agree with you that I have a sin struggle. I struggle with sin. And it's a choice for me on a regular basis to obey or to disobey. Is that unique to me or is that a common problem that all Christians share? We are all deeply affected by sin, and we must be on guard at all times to address our sin, to repent of our sin, to fight against the desires that are part of sin, regardless of how trivial it might seem to us, or we're being told that it is trivial by someone else. Sin is sin. Sin is wrong. Sin is bad. Sin is consistent with the deeds of darkness. Paul is calling on us to lay these things aside. So the contrast to self-rule is lordship. Verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So lay aside sin and put on the lordship of Christ. Lay aside self-rule and give yourself to Christ's rule to sit on the throne of your heart and of your will. This is choosing His rule over my own rule. It's choosing righteousness over sin. Again, putting on is intentional, and it doesn't happen automatically. You know, if we start our day... And we get up at the last second and we rush through our bathroom routine and we rush through our eating routine and we rush out the door to go to work or we just get up and have a lazy day and we never stop to pray. We never stop to look at His Word. We never pray that He would lead and guide and that we would, that we would submit and follow. If we don't do that, we have not intentionally put anything on. We are remaining in a sinful, flesh ruled state of being until we make the choice to put it on. 
So putting this on is intentional and it doesn't happen automatically. The word provision that Paul uses here has the basic meaning of forethought of planning ahead. So more often than not, the sins that we commit develop from wrong ideas and sinful or lustful desires that we have allowed to linger in our minds. You know, I've done a fair bit of counseling in my ministry time, and I've I've never had anybody sit down with me and say, you know, I was just minding my own business, and lo and behold, I found myself committing the act of adultery. I just, I don't know what happened. I just, poof, I don't know how I got there. I've never, ever, ever had anybody say that. Why? Because that's not the way it works. People commit adultery because they set their minds on it. They think on it. They dwell on it. They begin to consider, how could I do this? And with whom could I do it? And how can I go away with it? And what would be my my excuses be? And how could I enable this to happen? And lo and behold, it does happen. So it never happens in a vacuum. It happens because we allow these desires to linger in our minds. And it's true for not just adultery. It's true for any willful sin that we commit. We've allowed it to linger instead of killing it with the truth of God's Word and the commitment to allow His Lordship to rule and reign in our lives. So allowing this to linger in our minds and allowing our desires to be fixated on those things, it's consistent with our flesh. Our sinful nature and our tendencies will draw us toward the things forbidden and away from the things that are instructed by God. Isn't that true? If we, if we allow sinful activities to linger in our minds, it leads us to the forbidden. And as we are being led to the forbidden, we are being led away from those things that God has provided for us. The longer we allow these sinful desires to stay, the more provision we make for the flesh to bring them to fruition. We read this in James in just a couple of Sundays, James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The devil didn't make you do it. Your parents didn't make you do it. Your buddies didn't make you do it. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So to avoid making provisions for the flesh or for allowing room for the flesh in our lives, we are to put on the Lordship of Christ, which is a choice to obey and lay aside sin. How well are we growing in our Lordship? How intensely are we fighting against sin? How much provision are we making for sin? How well are we impacting others for Christ? How mindful are we of the shortness of the era that we currently live in? No one knows the year, the month, the day, the hour that He will come. He will come like a thief in the night. And I believe that 
Paul's purpose in including this to the church at Rome as he did to the church in Colossae or Galatia, I believe. I can't remember the parallel part of this. The purpose is to help us to recognize the impact of allowing sin in our lives has on our fruitfulness, on our faithfulness in this era. We will all stand before the Lord. We will all give an account for our life. We will all be held accountable for our life. What we have done with this message of God's grace, how we have faithfully lived out a life committed to Christ, we will stand before Him and we will give an account. And if we aren't mindful of that reality, we are more likely to remain in a state of spiritual slumber as opposed to being spiritually intentional in the lives that we live. We choose to put on every single day. In fact, we choose to put on and take off all throughout our day. And I believe this is a good time for us to consider exactly where we are in our stage of spiritual sleep. Would you pray with me?